are the things that we spend our time on. They're the things we spend our money on. They're the things that we think about in the middle of the night when we wake up. They're the things that we're anxious about when we don't have them. And so it's worth your time this week to ask yourself, what do I really find important? And I wonder if those of us who are Christians in the room, those of us who believe in Christ, can really look at ourselves in the mirror and say, God is the most important thing in my life. If you're really honest with yourself, can you say God is the most important thing to me? Another way of asking this question is, do I love God more than I love anyone or anything else? This is an idea that runs all the way through the Bible, from the beginning of Eden all the way through the teachings of Jesus. And in the latter part of the 5th century, Augustine really put some clarity to it. He called for believers to have properly ordered loves. He said that you can only have one of two things at the top of your love list. You either love God most and find your happiness in him, or you love yourself most. And you look for your happiness in the world. You look for your happiness in things that are not God. Throughout the Bible, sin is consistently described as a way of elevating our own sinful desires over what God wants for us. Sin is when the love of ourselves crowds out, replaces, becomes more important than our love of God. And so God can be number one, and anything else that you put over God means that you are necessarily putting yourself on top of your list. And so when you ask yourself the question, what do you love the most? You might say, my spouse. You might say, my children. If you're honest with yourself, you might say money or beauty or success. And some of those things are good things. Don't mishear me. You should love your family. But you shouldn't love your family more than you love God. And so the question we're asking ourselves as we walk through Psalm 1 today is what do I love the most? That's what I'm calling the objects of love. You can either love yourself or you can love God. And then we're going to talk about what's at stake something I'm calling the fruits of love. When you love God the most, what happens? When you love something else most, what does it look like? And what's at stake is happiness. What's at stake is hope. What's at stake is eternity. The question of who you love most is important because what's at stake for you is happiness and hope and eternity. Now today, we're going to think about the beautiful six verses of Psalm 1. And I want us to remember that we're reading poetry. I want us to remember that we're looking at pictures painted by words that give us a beautiful vision of what it looks like to love God and what it looks like for us to be loved by God. And the verses of Psalm 1 actually paint us two pictures. Like you're sitting in an art museum looking at two paintings hanging on the wall. Each one is a beautiful masterpiece, but you can learn something about them by comparing them. You gain insight into what's happening in one by looking back and forth between them. And the two paintings today each have a road on it. One of them is bathed in light. It's the way of God. It's the way that is rooted in the truth of who God is. And one of them is bathed in darkness. It's being rooted in yourself. It's a way apart from God. It's a road of despair. 
And Psalm 1 gives us the chance to study who's on each of these roads, what the surroundings are like, and where they lead. So if you found Psalm 1 this morning, would you mind standing in honor of God's word as I read for us? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So let me first just give you a technical analysis. Which verses go in which painting, okay? Uh, The way of God, the way that's rooted in God is verse 1. Blessed is the man. Then in verse 2, delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree, and all that he does he prospers. And then verse 5, excuse me, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Then the way apart from God is depicted in verse 1, walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Verse 4, like the chaff that the wind drives away. And verse 5 is a picture of final judgment that results in separation from God. So I want to start by focusing on the objects of love. And to do that, we're going to look at verse 2. This is the way with God, and it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want to focus in on two words here. Law, used in this context, is a broad word. It's not a narrow word. It's not just the part of the Bible where the rules are. Okay? It means all of God's revelation of himself, everything that he has ever said about himself, his very essence, his being, who he is. Then delight is a great word. It um, means something in which to take great pleasure. It's not a superficial happiness or a giddiness, but it's a deep heart satisfaction. It's joy. It's happiness. It's pleasure. And I've been thinking for about a month about a way, an analogy that I could use to explain what it is to delight in God, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because everything that I have ever delighted in has let me down. Everything that I have ever delighted in has ended or has been disappointing to me. Think about, just for a second, what it is that you take great pleasure in. Just think for a second. What is it that you take great pleasure in? And now multiply that times eternity. And now think that that thing will never disappoint you or that person will never disappoint you. And maybe we now have a taste of what it would be to delight in the law of the Lord, to take pleasure in who God is, to cling to him because he's never going to disappoint us, to take our rest in him because of who he is. That's what I think it means to delight in the law of the Lord. How does the blessed man do it? It says, on his law he meditates day and night. What do you think about when you wake up in the middle of the night? 
Do you meditate on the law of God? Do you think about who God is? Do you have scripture verses that you meditate on and think about over and over again? Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The blessed man, the way of God, the way of delighting in God is to think about God. To delight in him is to read his scripture, to know him. You know, I hear this this verse Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And I hear Deuteronomy 6. I hear, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This first picture is one of total love and devotion to who God is. Then we move to the other painting in verse 1 and we see that the man who is not blessed or the man um, who is wicked walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. And I think this is what C.S. Lewis might call a complete anti-God state of mind. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. Each of these phrases paints a picture of some broad ways of understanding sin. It's not a list. Sometimes in the Bible we get a list, right, of sins that we're not supposed to do. This isn't like that. These are three representative images that helps us understand the nature of sin. So let me just tell you what they mean. First, walks in the counsel of the wicked. This means to take advice from, to hear from, to listen to the recommendations of those that are not godly. It means to listen to what people think about you. It means to listen to what people think about you, to be more concerned about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. It's about your intellect. Then standing in the way of sinners is about a way of living. It's a way of life. It's a habitual practice of disobeying God. It's willfully violating who God is. And then finally, sitting in the seat of scoffers is a picture of a person who is so entrenched against God, so entrenched against God that he or she looks down on other people for not being like them. They mock other people. They're cynical. They're judgmental. They're so rooted in their own sin that they... Look down on others for not being like them. The other thing to notice is, isn't it interesting that the psalm isn't parallel here? If I had been writing, I probably would have said something like, blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the godly, stands in the way of the righteous, and sits in the seat of the prophets. But those aren't the opposing images we're getting. And so each of the three phrases in verse 1 is set up in direct opposition to delighting in the law of God. Delighting in the law of the Lord is fundamentally opposed to walking in the counsel of the wicked. Delighting in who God is is fundamentally opposed to sitting in the seat of scoffers or standing in the way of sinners. You cannot, at the same time, delight in who God is and be a sinner. You cannot, at the same time, sin and delight in who God is. They are mutually exclusive. And this is why it's so important to look back and forth between these two pictures. Because if you just looked at verse 1, I think you'd be tempted to say, well, maybe I listen to people sometimes. And I'm really not that bad of a person, so maybe I'm in the way of sinners. But I'm definitely not a scoffer. I'm definitely not a scoffer, so I'm good. I can be blessed by God, right? It's like a little checklist of moral perfection that we're looking for. That's not what God is after at all. God is after your heart. He's after our hearts. He wants us to delight in him. And anything short of that, 
anything short of that falls into the other category. Now, the other thing to notice here is this progression. Look at the verbs. Walking, standing, sitting. It's a progression where people become more and more rooted, more and more settled in sin, more and more entrenched against God. And just as we saw delighting in the law of God as clinging to him, looking to him for rest, we now have to ask ourselves, what are the ungodly clinging to for their rest? And I would say that the wicked are giving themselves over to their own selfish desires, whereas the godly are driven by God's testimony about himself. And so the first point is there are only two objects of love. There's God and there's everything else. You can either love God more than you love yourself or you love yourself more than you love God. And so the question then is what's at stake? I'm calling that the fruits of love, right? What happens when you love God? What happens when you love yourself? And what's at stake here is happiness. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man. That word means happy. It means joyful. It means fulfilled. And what the text is saying is you can be happy right now. If you have fallen asleep in the first 15 minutes, now is the time to wake up. You can be happy now in your life. That is a profound statement. And if it's not connecting with you, I would challenge you with something that Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, asks. He says, are you consistently and fundamentally a happy person? And if not, why not? Are you a consistently and fundamentally happy person? And if not, why not? The Bible here and in many other places promises that you can experience happiness now. And the first thing to note about it, and this I think is an exceptionally important point, by saying blessed is the man who doesn't do these three things, but who seeks God, who delights in God, what I think the argument is this. When you seek God first, you get happiness. When you seek happiness, you get nothing. Seek God and he will bless you. Do not be so concerned with your happiness that you seek it first and foremost, for you will certainly not get God. Now, the question that I think is important then is, okay, Bill, you say that this psalm promises happiness. Well, what does it look like? What does it look like to be happy? What is God promising? And I would tell you that the happiness that is promised here is profoundly spiritual. It's profoundly spiritual, and it is not circumstantial, which is really good news. The way that the promise comes is in a metaphor. In verse 3, the person who is happy, who is blessed by God, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. And the first thing I want us to notice is that this tree is subject to seasons. Note that it only bears fruit in its season. It doesn't bear fruit all the time. So that means that the tree experiences spring, but the tree also experiences winter and summer and dryness and drought. But this tree is planted in a delta. It's planted on a riverbank so that in the drought, it has access to a constant and unremitting stream of water. 
So the question that I want to ask as we apply this metaphor to our lives is, what are your seasons and where are your roots? That's what we need to ask. What are your seasons and where are your roots? And I I think the seasons in our life are pretty obvious. They're suffering. They're despair. They're shame. They're guilt. And for whatever reason, we always seem to look to those circumstances to define our happiness. Right? We look to how we what's going on in our life to determine whether we're happy. And you know, in my household, we have I have a four year old daughter. We think a lot about Disney princesses. So you're going to get a Disney princess example. I was reading Cinderella this week and realized how much of her situation was based on her circumstances. Don't we feel like we're the, evil, the stepsister who's being wrongly accused? And if people just knew who we were, they wouldn't treat us like that. And so we go out into the garden and we pray to God, God, will you be my fairy godmother? Can you do a little bippity-boppity-boo and make me live happily ever after? Right? If I only won the lottery then I'd be happy. If I only had a bigger house, then I'd be happy. If I only had a better job, then I'd be happy. If I only had my spouse love me more, then I'd be happy. You know, what's worse about these circumstances, these seasons, is that we think they're never going to end. Have you ever been in a period like that where you forgot what the water tastes like, where it's so dry? It's so overwhelming and isolating and lonely because you think that it's never going to end. And I must say, I think you're right. I think that while you might get a better car or your children will not always be two forever, right? Fundamentally, we live in a fallen world. And we are always going to be subject to seasons. We're always going to have drought Those will be intermixed with times where we bear fruit and where the spring comes, right? So this one particular season of life will not be like that forever, but there will always be seasons. And the promise of the psalm, the promise of the psalm is that you have roots that dig down deep so that you don't have to wither in those seasons. Happiness can come in the midst of winter, Happiness can come in the midst of drought, not because of the circumstance, but because of where your roots are. Now, I I just need to emphasize this point because I don't want you to miss it. I'm not calling you to put on a smile, be happy-go-lucky, and pretend that everything is fine. That is not what we're being called to here. The tree feels the seasons. Christians are called to grieve. And the church should be the place that we grieve together. I hope that you don't feel like you always have to have on a everything's fine attitude. That's not what Christianity is about. That's being brainwashed. Okay? Christians are called to grieve sin and suffering and despair. It's supposed to point us to a time when we don't have to be like that anymore. The promise of Psalm 1 is that you can have deep roots in the midst of that suffering. I think 1 Peter... 1 6 says this well. It says, You rejoice in him, though you are now in great heaviness. Great heaviness, distress, pain. We feel the pain. It's just that the joy of who God is overwhelms that pain. 
And so at the same time, we can proclaim that we are happy, that we are full of joy, even though our circumstances are terrible. I also want to be real clear about what I think the river is. So the question is, where are your roots, right? This side of Jesus, I think we can say that the river is the living water. Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty, and you will never be thirsty again. When we have faith in Christ, we are no longer seen for who we are. We're no longer defined by our circumstances. We're no longer defined by our sin because Christ came and paid the penalty for that. And so we're not our circumstances. We are Christ in us. And so you don't have to rest in who you used to be for your happiness. You don't have to rest in who you used to be for your security. You get to rest in Christ for your security. So when the drought comes, and it will come, dig your roots into who Christ is. Dig your roots into what he has done for you, and your soul will find rest. Jesus says in John seven thirty seven, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you are so thirsty that you can't remember what water tastes like, cling to Jesus, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, and you will not be thirsty. The promise of Psalm 1 is not that you will not suffer. The promise of Psalm 1 is that when you suffer, you can dig your roots down deep into the living water that is Christ. So let's for a moment then look at the other picture. You can be like a tree planted by streams of water or you can be like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I don't have any farm skills. I am a city boy, so I don't know what chaff is, right? It took me a while to figure that out. And um, I can't describe it to you because I've never touched it, but what I am sort of envisioning is this sort of useless byproduct of the harvest that gets blown away by the wind. They don't even have to throw it away because the wind blows it away, right? And so I kind of am envisioning like sand or like flour or like the little wispy things on the corn on the cob, you know, that you just kind of go like that and the wind blows them away. They're useless. They have no root, right? They just, whatever happens to them, they get blown around by their circumstances. And life is hard. We are plagued with suffering, with anxiety, with despair. And the experience of these things often causes us to be blown around, doesn't it? Like one bad day at work or a difficult day with your children or a harshly spoken word by someone who loves you. And I am thrown into the depths of despair. I am blown around. The promises of God are that when you love him first, you don't have to be like the chaff anymore. Your happiness is not dependent on your circumstances. It's not dependent on what somebody said to you. It's not dependent on what you thought they said to you. It's not dependent on suffering. It's dependent on who God is. You can be strong and permanent and immovable. You can be a tree. And not only a tree, but a tree that doesn't wither in the drought. Now, 
I want to just meditate on the law of the Lord for a minute. I want to think about, if you're suffering this morning, where can you put your roots? I'm just going to read you five verses. Well, wait, one, two, three, four, five, yeah, five verses. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 40, have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Put your roots into that. When you are suffering, what happens? Your roots are forced to go deeper. When a tree is dry, it roots, its, its roots go further down looking for water. Send your roots into that, and you will not wither. Far from it, you will be blessed by God the Father Almighty in the midst of your suffering. Now, I know that it doesn't always feel like this. It doesn't always feel like this when you can't remember what water tastes like. You wonder if the river is really there or not because you, you haven't hit it yet. Your roots are still looking, you know. And the psalm gives us one more taste of why. Why can we be happy in the midst of suffering? And it comes in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word knows, it's not a casual acquaintance kind of know. It's a deep, intimate knowledge. It's often used in the Bible to refer to marriage. And so what it's saying is that God, God Almighty, the holy God, knows you like a husband knows a wife. God Almighty knows your way like a wife knows a husband. It actually took me a minute to connect with this. Why is it important that God knows my way? And I thought of these books that I used to read as a kid. Did you all ever read Choose Your Own Adventure books? I'd like a show of hands. Choose Your Own Adventure books? Good. I'm glad I'm not alone. So these books were where you used to read through a scenario, and you'd get to the bottom of the page. And it would say, you have two choices. You can turn to page 72 or page 65. So 
Maybe you're a warrior fighting in the jungle and it, you get to the end of it and it says, you can either fight the witch on page 50 or you can turn in the cave on page 82. And what happened to me was I invariably picked the cave, page 82, and you turn the page and it says, you encounter a dragon, you are dead, period. Right? Like I always picked the wrong thing. <clears throat> and so what I found myself doing was flipping through this book, looking for the page that said, you win, you're the king, you have $3 million, you live happily ever after, right? And I think our lives are like that a lot. We're flipping through the book, trying to find the page that leads us to happiness, trying to find us the the ultimate scenario where we win. The promise of Psalm 1 isn't that you aren't going to have to make the choice. The promise is that God wrote the book. The promise is that God is not going to abandon you when you pick the wrong page. God knows your way. He's going to hold your hand. He's going to make you turn to the left and to the right. He already knows what page is the best for you. You know, Psalm 73 says this, my heart and my, excuse me, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. That's what I think it is to have God know your way, to have God be the strength of your heart. The promise of the gospel is that God will not abandon you. God will not abandon you in your suffering. He is going to be a river, and he is going to plant you next to that river so that your roots can dig down deep to him. Now, the final part of this psalm bears ultimate significance. It speaks of the coming judgment of God. In verse 5, it says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The man who delights in himself and who is like chaff that the wind blows away will have the rug pulled out from underneath him in the judgment. His knees will be cut out from underneath him, and he will be cast out from the presence of God forever. Whereas if you delight in who God is, Not only can you experience happiness now, but you can anticipate the fullness of glory that will come when you are in God's presence as one of his children. You can experience happiness now, but you can anticipate the more full expression of that happiness when Christ comes again. And so the psalm paints a picture of two ways. One that is constantly driven by selfish ambition, that results in being like chaff. No security, no permanence, no value that ultimately results in the separation of God. And it paints a picture that delights in who God is, that loves God, that seeks to know God, that clings to him. And you can be immovable, unshakable, with deep roots. And I don't know where you are this morning. You might have fruit in your trees. Or you might be in the deepest desert that you've ever felt. And the promise of Psalm 1 is that those circumstances don't negate the promise of God. I think sometimes we don't want to hope. We don't want to get our hopes up. Because as we've been so dry for so long, we've forgotten what it's like to delight in God. We don't want to get our hopes up. And honestly, it's pretty audacious of me to stand up here and tell you that your circumstances don't affect your happiness. People just lost their homes in a massive tornado. Children die. 
Children are shot in schools. It's pretty audacious of me to stand up here and say that, except for the fact that I'm not the one who's saying it. The Lord God Almighty is promising you that you can taste of him in the drought. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So place your hope in the Lord. Get your hopes up. Come and drink and be satisfied. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, we admit that we are blown around like the chaff that the wind drives away, that we seek our own happiness, that we try to delight in who we are in our circumstances, and God, we know that's not profitable. And so we pray that you would teach us, that you would teach us to have deep roots. You would teach us to have roots that dig deep into the streams of your love and mercy and abundance. God, help us to be like a tree that does not wither in the drought. Help us to love you for who you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.